Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and our Catching Up With series. Who are we catching up with? Dear friend, I guess I, I could say Paul Page, old friend, but the word old is bugging me more as I get older. So we'll, we'll just say <laughs> dear and long-standing friend, Paul Page. Uh, if you are a fan of motor racing, probably IndyCar racing in particular, I would hope you know Paul, his voice, his amazing commentary and insights. And even better, I'm holding in my hand a beautiful tome with a forward from Mario Andretti. Your autobiography and... We'll get into this, Paul, but I, I mean, I feel like there could be about seven of these by the time you're done. But uh, hello, I'm Paul Page. It's race day in Indianapolis, a beautiful product that came out uh, in 2022, produced by Blue River Press. So, Paul, thanks for taking some time on this little show of mine brought to us by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers in TorontoMotorsports.com. What, uh, what in the world possessed you, Paul, to put all these great stories uh in print i i'm not if i'd known when i started i probably never would have done it ah. uh, and by the way it's um it's being republished now by octane press so this is back out there available uh anyhow um i just thought that i had done so many things in my life and my family kept bugging me that uh, you know, primarily racing, because that's my love, that's my passion. But there's some other stuff in there. And they said, we need to share it, if nothing more than with the family. So I started looking at how I would write such a thing. And my my way of thinking, the last great history of the Indy 500 is Al Blemker's 500 miles to go. Mm. And that ended in 1959. Yeah. Well, the first race I attended was 1960. So I decided to pick up there use history as, as the frame, and then tell what I hope are some wonderful stories about the good times and the good people racing. Of the many things that I have appreciated about you, Paul, you do not come into or you haven't come into this profession you're most known for as just that. Hi, I went to broadcast school, and I'm a bit of a benign tool that could be sent to cover hockey or the local uh, uh, state fair or whatever else. You're not someone who was just kind of built in a lab to just speak words into microphones. You're someone who, like many of us, including our, our late friend Robin Miller, who oh, came into the sport with love, with passion, but you were not handed the proverbial golden microphone from day one. You've had to work your way up uh, from the, the least desirable jobs, stringing in a, in a variety of things. Why don't we start there, Paul, about you coming into the sport and you having to work and earn your way forward? Well, I, I was in love with the 500 since I was 15, and... I wanted to. I just wanted to do something that involved the Indianapolis 500. It, it had obsessed me, and so after the army, I came to Indianapolis, and I I had some. I actually had more of a technical skill than a than a broadcast skill. Um, got a job, a couple places as a disc jockey of all things, and then ended up uh, in the news department at WIBC, which is where Sid Collins. The, the great guy who, you know, he 
he did an incredible thing creating the 500 mile race radio network. Yeah. And he, uh, he must've taken pity on me or something. <laughs> and he started training me with the absolute promise that I would never be on the radio network. But, um, uh, then when 73, after that horrible, whole horrible race and the fatality, um, he decided, they had decided at the Speedway they were going to lengthen the pits, and he decided that they needed an extra pit announcer. And so here I was assigned to the North Pits when there were no pit speed limits, and the guys would be going about 170 when they came <laughs> past me. So, <laughs> and, but, and I decided at that moment, uh, you know, it'd be cool if I could get one of the turn positions or something and not risk my life down here. <laughs> and thankfully, your life was saved. And you were assigned to more. I would. I'd love to stay here in the early, mid, even late seventies. Paul, talk about that era. You know, I was born in nineteen seventy, so I wasn't uh, awake or alert enough for a lot of it. But I certainly have read plenty and just have a great passion for what really feels like one of the Indianapolis five hundreds wildest, most open eras. What comes to mind from being a part of things back then? I'm not saying it was all, you know, bell bottoms and, and, you know, long hair continuing on from the late sixties, but, uh, it's, it was not nearly as regulated as it was right now. What do you recall from that era that stands out? Well, you know, it was, um, it was pretty much a free for all. That's true. Um, the sport was making a lot of transitions. They were doing the transition and finishing it from the front engine car to the rear engine car. And I can remember when the press releases listed whether or not it was a front or rear engine car. Wow. And um, the, the drivers weren't the drivers that we have now. They, uh, they, they were drivers. They were just going to drive. And they drove not just Indy. They drove you know, a, lot of, a lot of Sprint, a lot of USAC. Uh, and they were tough. And then in came the big corporate sponsors and everything, which was a good thing. But that changed the attitude of how everybody worked. And that, that you know, because now you had, had, to be, had to be nice. At least you had to be presentable. Um, and the, the racing itself, I mean, there was some massive cheating, which was fun <laughs> to watch. <laughs> and, and most of it got caught. And just this, this group of really incredibly close individuals. We were definitely a family. Now, then as time moved on, out, as we moved out into the actually late 80s and into the 90s, uh, the, the, um, the fact that there were now big money, there was big money, there, so that brought on big and newer equipment, which brought on engineers. And so the, the race day went from when we used to, at the end of the day, a whole bunch of us, and I'm talking, it could be, you know, it could be Penske, it could be Patrick over here. You got all these different guys and their teams. And we just, we don't all go to dinner. We'd see each other at dinner. Mm. Uh, now you can't do that because everybody, the drivers are all involved in, uh, in debriefing and doing things for their sponsors. And so that community, that closeness, while it didn't go away completely, it, it's still there but it, it just changed. And having said that, I, 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 a couple of years ago, I, I was thinking to me, the golden age was probably 1960 through about 1968, 
maybe to 70. And so I, I thought, well, you know, that's terrible. If that's, that's all gone, that's long gone. So I, a I started asking younger people, when was the golden age of racing? And it's like, oh, uh, 1990, 94, right now. And I suddenly realized for a fan, what you're watching now and whenever you started, that is the golden age. So uh, the definitions change on you. 100%. That was one of my most valuable revelations as well. I certainly have my favorite eras. And we can say for sure there are some eras that were undoubtedly better than others. But that does not matter uh, for those who watched their first Indy 500 in 2013 and watched Tony Kanon win and became right. lifelong fans of Tony or Marcus Erickson, those who just watched their first 500 this past May. And that is their number one bar of reference. And we can go on and on to, yeah, see, back in 19 such and such, yeah, that right. was the best, see? But the reality <laughs> is, again, it's all, all context. You know, uh, I'd love and obviously would recommend folks to uh to go and find octane press and take home your book just because uh i have i'm not done with it by any means but i've thoroughly enjoyed um reading it so far paul i would love to learn more about style of broadcasting talking about radio obviously for you in the early days of your relationship uh from a broadcasting standpoint at the indy 500 that obviously then transitioned into television but i'm often curious about styles and approaches of folks like yourself who came in having to use what you saw to convey to folks who like you are wanting to be stirred up and just filled with passion for this indianapolis 500 motor race but not with the benefit of a television with with live moving pictures in front of their eyes today it's the, the proverbial wall of a thousand monitors in front of those who are broadcasting the race. But can you paint a portrait, Paul, for what it was like, at least when you were starting out of realizing, aha, I can't say, oh, see that there on the such and such card? No, nobody can see that. I have to be the conduit. Well, when I, when I started, I was actually a hard news reporter at WIBC and, um, so I had at least the inquisitive, the curiosity of a journalistic background. And then when I actually began doing it, when I finally became the host play-by-play -play for the Indy 500, I had realized from what we had, what I'd done before, you have to take these, these people with you. You have to show them your passion. Hopefully you can make them seem sit sitting next to you in, in the seat. But, you, you have to paint that picture. Uh, you, you have to make the whole thing sparkle for everybody. You have to get the sense of the atmosphere. Um, and and that's, that's what I would always try and look and do because Indy 500 especially is so much more than just a car race. And, uh, you know, you, unfortunately, you missed the days of the, of the snake pit down in the first turn, which was pretty colorful stuff to cover. And, but, and so I, what I'm saying is you, you have to roll all of that in together on radio. And you can't do it on an event as, as gigantic as Indy. You can't do it by yourself. The play-by-play the, the -play guy, I'm the traffic cop. 
Uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you where the story is going to go. And we've got communication systems to talk to the, the other guys off the air to let them know where we're going. Um, but we as a group are, we're announcers. We're journalists. We, we are, we paint pictures. And so we, we can move forward quite quickly. We can cover things simultaneously. Um, you, you can have two events and, Actually, you just you're sliding time a little on the radio and making it happen. But the most important thing is just to, to bring that passion. That's that's always what I look for in guys that I that I worked with. But then when television went live, I had I had worked for NBC Sports uh, doing their auto racing from 1979 on to uh, Boy, they, fortunately, those were mostly tape shows. They covered mostly the, the start of CART. So you weren't totally committed to the, the broadcast because it wasn't live. And you could go back and the show could get compressed and you, and you would make changes in the show. But now, here I'm going to do the Indianapolis 500 live. And as you said, there is a truck somewhere with about a million monitors in it. But more importantly, in that truck is a producer who is now going to tell us what the story is. And it wasn't always true that that person who probably rode in a taxi cab most of his life had any idea what we were talking about. And it was, it had always been very, very difficult to convince people, and I wasn't always successful at it, that. You know, the battle for 14th and 15th could be one hell of a battle. Why are we riding on the leader? You know, so it's, it's silly things like that. Um, I, I, I fought the good fight. I fought the entire time to get, uh, get us to copy soccer and cover the event open. And um, after I left, suddenly there was side by side. I, I really battled for onboard cameras and uh, confident reporters in the pits who really understood what they were doing and, and could convey it. But when you're doing television, you're not necessarily the, uh, the traffic cop or the pivot that you are in radio. And that's, uh, that's kind of difficult for somebody that has the passion, you know, knowing full well that this or that's going on and I, and I can't get you there. Um, you may remember the year that, uh, uh, well, we've had it a couple of times, but I, and I, I, my memory is just blanked out on me. We had a, a driver spin and hit the end of the pit barrier yes. um, at Indy on the first lap, at the end of the first lap. Well, from the booth, I could see that happen. And I look back over to my monitor, and it's not there. Well, in television, if it's not on the screen, it didn't happen. And so I'm waiting for that shot to come up. It seemed like it was an hour. It was maybe four or five seconds. But, you know, it's, come on, guys. We, there's things that really need covering and you got to get to them quickly because as in pit interviews, if you don't get to them fast enough, they're gone. So, uh, television is an entirely different animal and, and, uh, pretty com complex thing to do for racing. Come back to more of the broadcast side in just a moment, Paul, but I wanted to take a bit of a, uh, a detour into the book, uh, the, the apt choice of chapter 13, uh, it's titled living the dream. It starts by uh, getting into some of the more fun stuff, some of the characters like a smoky eunuch. Uh, you have a, a great uh, mention of 
cheating and air quote circumventing the rules. AJ Foyt's name is mentioned. Uh, you, you talk <laughs> about seeing, you know, a, a bolt welded to uh, Jerry Sneva's pop-off valve to make sure. That yeah, that, that wouldn't have been George McNaughty, I don't think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's these kinds of things that I appreciate as well in your book, Paul, because they speak to uh, something that you have just been a master of throughout your career. Uh, and also, I'm sure folks before you in your role, but after as well, you and I met for the first time 25 plus years ago when you were walking down pit lane somewhere and noticed that uh, I is the, uh, you didn't know that I had done it, but no, I actually think you might've come into our, our garage, I should say, uh, at Indianapolis might've been 97 or 98 and, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, uh, Comedy Central show South Park uh, had recently uh, come on the air, became uh-huh. super popular, and we had a short and very round refueler um, by the name of Gary Pennison Sr., and mm-hmm. he looked a little bit like Cartman uh, when he was in his fire suit and with his helmet. So I just had our graphics person make up some some graphics, so I put Cartman on his helmet, and he didn't know a damn thing about South Park, nor did he know he looked like right. the adult version of Cartman. And then our refueler, who was, his name was Ed Nelson. I'm sorry, our vent person, Ed Nelson, tall, fairly slim, but kind of mumbled a lot, kind of like Kenny from South Park. So I put Kenny on the side of his refueling helmet again. He had no clue. So we had Kenny and Cartman. You happened to be walking by, might've poked your head in the garage. Uh, I happened to see you, you, your head snapped and saw that the two refueling helmets positioned wherever they were in your line of sight had Kenny and Cartman on them, and you just came straight up to me and said, you got to tell me the story about that. I love South Park. <laughs> but it's that kind of thing, Paul, that I uh, have always appreciated about you. And as I said, you know, the Lee Diffies and Kevin Lees of today, they are very much of that same uh, school of mind where you say, okay, I could sequester myself in this big, you know, tower atop, the, the speedway and, and stay up there and be a very important person. No, 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 no. The way I not do if, my job, the, story, you no. the way I present a, a better Indianapolis 500 or whatever IndyCar race through television, through radio is by getting down and meeting people and not just, Hey, what's the story? What's the scoop? But what are some of the other layers that add color? Could you talk about that a bit? Cause again, whether it's some of the names that I mentioned in your book, um, that's always been a big part of, of how you do what you do. Well, I, 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 I always wanted that personal touch. Um, it, 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 that's that story right there alone. I mean, that, that, that was so cool and such fun to be able to relay it because it humanized everybody, you know, especially now when, when the drivers are locked down in essentially a jet fighter's cockpit and everybody in the pits wearing helmets and everything. Part of our job is to humanize it, and it was a lot easier in the 70s than it is now because everything was upright. You could see them and everything. But so, to me, humanizing them, got here guys and gals operating at the absolute pinnacle of their career. They're, they, they're out there, especially at the Indy 500. They have the full glare of the public spotlight. And their contributions may only be seven seconds, but they're so significant. And one, one example of what I tried to get ABC to do was 
put the camera behind the car when they make a pit stop. And then when the car rolls, rolls away, pan up to the crew because they're glad handing and, you know, having a good time and everybody's cheering for them. And that was kind of human stuff I, I always look for. I wasn't always successful. but And then I also, I'm, I'm a gearhead. I love to mess with stuff. Uh, I love to mess with automobiles. And so being around uh, those cars, I at least had some tiny baseline to ask some questions. And uh, I get some marvelous answers. I learned all kinds of technology that, that I never thought they would even share with me. And, and one of the nicer things was that I'd go into a garage and they'd say, hey, come over, look at this. You know, now you, you, you can't talk about that unless we win or unless we do well or unless that comes into play, then you can talk about Otherwise, don't say anything. And one, to be trusted that way, and two, to be able to understand some of those mechanisms uh, was, was not always important to me. It was an absolute pleasure. I, I loved going in the garages. I love hanging with people, and I love just talking about racing. Another thing, Paul, that just lended more credibility, you weren't averse to strapping on a fire suit and uh yeah, trying well, to make i was just, i'm not was saying thinking. you were destined you know <laughs> on that that mount rushmore i don't know if we're we're knocking off uh mario aj uh or any <laughs> anyone else quite yet rick mears fairly safe uh up there but yet again another way in which you're able to learn more connect more not just be someone flapping their gums into a microphone but doing your best to actually grasp and understand what it was that these drivers and engineers and you name it are, are doing that uh, is, is the core of your, your life's passion. Well, actually both Robin Miller and I at that same time went that same direction. Uh, I went to SCCA formula Fords. Robin bought one and tried to race it for a while, but then he went over to midgets and raced in USAC. We refer to this as his prolonged uh, suicide attempt, by the way. So <laughs> yes, yes, there is your ways well, in, in less expensive ways, Miller. I mean, if I was a pro owner, I would pay a lot because he was, he was fun to watch. <laughs> um, anyhow, um, first of all, I wanted to see if I could do it and I wanted to understand what the challenges were and the formula Ford, a, a number of drivers, had recommended it. Now, at that time, SCCA and Formula Ford was kind of looked down on by the the, the real the, the center of the Indy 500 guys. I mean, Bobby Unzer would look at me and say all kinds of deriding things about the car I was driving. But uh, it taught me it taught me how to how to I use the term love the car through a corner. They didn't have any power at all. So you really had to understand the suspension. You really had to learn how to drive with, with keeping as much momentum going as long as you can. And so that allowed me to have also then conversations with drivers who really do it for a living. Now, I do have to admit that I really enjoy driving. Um, you caught me once, actually. It was kind of fun. Um, I got to drive the uh, Porsche IndyCar at the Nürburgring. Yeah. And um, I, I just referred to it in, in that regard. And, of course, it, it only really had a Porsche engine. It was a March. Um, and you caught me. You actually, you actually wrote a note that, you, you know, it's kind of like, you idiot. <laughs> and I was. 
but uh, so I, you know, to do things like that, and then an event you'd n- probably never guess that I love uh, is uh, the Baja Thousand. Wow. I love driving that event. That's so much fun. Uh, especially you feel when you go into La Paz uh, and you're going in at the dark, especially when you when you drive as slowly as I do. Um, and here are all these fans lining the tree, the streets. It's it's like you know the Pan American Road Race. They're reaching out and they want stickers and they just want to touch your hand. And you know you're cruising along at four or five miles an hour, waiting to get to the finish. And then, how cool is that? That's just wonderful. You know, I'd I'd love to close here, Paul. And I'm intentionally not just reading citation after citation from your book because I want folks to go and get it and, and enjoy it. Uh, uh, first time you, I guess all of us who've done this for a while, we tend to have a, a couple of main folks, a couple of main conspirators that are heavily attached to, uh, our careers. you know, if we think of a Dario Franchitti, right? He had some great teams he drove for great teammates. We think of him maybe alongside Paul Tracy, probably mm-hmm. alongside Scott Dixon. It's always a couple of folks that, that we carry with us as are uh, so close to us. You, and I say fortunately, part of me wants to say unfortunately, because he was a dear friend, but oh boy, a handful. I would imagine, brother, it's hard for you to go anywhere in Indianapolis, Midwest in general, be recognized by a fan and not get asked at least one question pertaining to the the knoweth the knower of all the 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 most uh, intelligent inventor o- only second possibly to God Bobby Unser um, there's <laughs> no way in the world you could possibly get away from him because he was such a huge part of what folks remember of your career. Again, mm-hmm. I say all this with love and reverie towards our, our, our late Uncle Bobby, of course. Again, one of the true char- great characters ever ever created. Also someone who you had to kind of gear up, put on a little bit of armor, it seemed like, on a daily basis when you knew you were going to be uh, stepping into the booth with him because this was never a friendly play-by-play type thing. Uh, this was someone who was always right and always ready to point out when you were wrong. And yet you, this is just a great character study of you, Paul. My natural reaction would be to tell him to F off and then I'd get yanked off the air and be banned by the FCC. You see in the long game realized, okay, I'm going to take body blow after body blow from this guy. Pretty much anytime we're working together, but I need to find fun or interesting ways to keep the dialogue moving not let it get too personal and entertain and inform uh you deserve a medal you deserve some sort of hazard pay i don't know you deserve a lot of things i know you get asked about uncle bobby all the time and i don't want to rehash some of the same things i would just like to learn more about you paul and how you adjusted and modified yourself to keep the broadcast going at a time when others would have probably socked them in the nose and stormed off. Well, that's, that's a good question. And it, uh, I'm going to share with you a story. I don't think I ever have publicly. 
The very first race that Bobby and I did together uh, live was at Phoenix for ABC. It was the start of my ABC time. And um, I have just Bobby and I in the booth. Sam Posey only did Indy 500s. And um, that was the year when they had a tube, just a, a regular old quarter-inch tube that ran from the right side of the helmet uh, and was clamped back by the uh, pop-off valve. And the purpose of it was, as you remember, to let them hear when the pop-off valve starting to hiss, meaning it's getting ready to open and they could adjust the drive accordingly. And Uncle Bobby, we started that race and he had nothing. He was absolutely stage, he, he just, he put, Bobby Unzer couldn't talk and that's a pretty big deal. Oh. <laughs> so, so now I'm, I'm into the deal of I gotta ask him questions and I'm you know, trying, to, trying to get him in going and picking up and you know, commenting on some stuff. Uh, and then so finally, I, we had an onboard camera shot over the driver's right-hand shoulder that showed that tube bouncing up and down in, in the airstream. And so I said, Bobby, look at that, that tube. That's, that's very interesting. You know, what, what does that do? And Bobby said, well, Paul, that's their emergency oxygen supply. And I just <laughs> looked at her. I didn't know how to come out of it. I truly didn't. And the one thing that I did learn working with him, though, is to be able to do the, the job that I love to do, you, you had to have a pretty solid understanding of, of the mechanics and what was going on technologically. And so I found out early on Bobby would say something that was an error, and I'd try and correct him oh. to, you know, save him. And the audience didn't want any part of that at all. If Bobby said it, it must be true. <laughs> and even when uh, when we had him and Sam in the booth together at the Indy 500, you know, Sam out of sports car racing, uh, uh, you know, almost an aristocrat, very well spoken and everything. And then and then you got Bobby, and Bobby didn't have a whole lot of regard for that group that came out of racing uh, in the SCCA, and uh, so. Bobby would would uh, listen to Sam make a statement. And Sam would make some sort of observation, technological statement, whatever. Bobby would immediately say, Sam, you're dead wrong. <laughs> and then he would start to explain what Sam just said. And, and here is what's really going on. And what happened was he eventually got around to saying exactly what Sam had said, just in a different way. And most important, Bobby Unzer had said it. Therefore, it's right. The gospel he ran into that all the time, according to Uncle Bobby. Yeah, oh, but boy. he was, you know, he was also he was also like one of the most intellectually honest guys I've ever met. If he didn't understand something, he would badger you un, until you you did understand. He did understand it. I mean, he 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 had you know great guys have that curiosity and that intellect and he just wouldn't let it go. You know, well, Paul, what's this? Well, it's that. No, no, I don't, I don't get that one. And you'd, you'd have to spend time and explain it to him. And he wouldn't let you go until you did. <sighs> one of my favorite things was explaining things to uncle Bobby later in his life, uh, mm -hmm. on, on the technological fronts. And, uh, yeah, you, you'd get, 
you'd get buy-in when you get the well honey uh or well doctor or something like that yeah. back uh <laughs> and if he didn't quite grasp what you're saying or believe it well you'd get a dissertation on what worked <laughs> back in 1967 on the such and such that he drove it somewhere and uh boy i sure miss him and uh some of the dear friends um, we've had absolutely we've we lost too many good friends in the past couple of years well let's end on a uh on a positive note paul and again i would i don't get paid for these I, I don't you know none of this is is promoting a book for any reason other than just love of the author or the the quality of the content inside the pages and that's certainly why i would love for folks to uh, do themselves a uh, a solid and go find your hello and paul page it's race day in indianapolis now as you just mentioned uh, into its second second printing that's pretty yeah. awesome paul that's uh, scary is what it is <laughs> well i always fear I, I if i were to write such a thing i don't know if i'd get a first publishing so the fact that you're on to a second that must yeah. mean good things are happening well as always appreciate you look forward to seeing you here uh soon when we get into the month of may and thanks for uh giving us fans of this sport some really really cool stuff to uh i to appreciate digest. that and not getting to go to all the races like i i'm i'm on board and racer and finding out what you're telling me day after day so you're you're a good part of my link with the sport right now well and it's good believe it's half good of it. that's all i'm saying believe half of it we'll be doing all right <laughs> paul page appreciate you brother thank you again marshall thank you so much